Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. For someone working in the day-to-day life of the architectural profession, the many constraints placed upon design output can make it seem like imagination is the mental muscle that is most important but that gets the least amount of work. It can feel frustrating that when developer and time requirements, end-user concerns, cost constraints, and a host of half-wit regulations are considered, creativity is to a great extent exhausted just in getting the work done. A kind of systems engineering does indeed comprise a significant part of the design process, but truly great buildings are not defeated by this. Even when under perennial constraints, architecture joins forces with engineering and adds the creativity of inspiration to the creativity of problem-solving. We seldom call to mind a building consisting of a supremely well-executed program. It is the inspiration it embodies, expressed as a thought form, and spurred through the gauntlet of practical concerns that sparks our own imaginations as observers and occupants. When we discussed the creative process as examined by Kandinsky, his metaphors of the piano and the spiritual triangle, it was the thought side of the equation that came under his scrutiny. Malevich, on the other hand, put much of his energy into exploring the variables of executed form. To orient ourselves in the seemingly weightless realm of the imagination, it is helpful to recall the metaphysical framework from last episode, Plato's ternary heuristic of being, Cora, and becoming. Brutally summarized from a modern perspective, being is the sphere of internal ideas, becoming is the external world we inhabit, and the Kora is the connective tissue between the two. Plato knew that to improve the world of becoming we inhabit, or even to understand it, we must reach beyond. He looked to the realm of supposedly perfect and eternal ideas, which instances in the world resemble to various degrees, but the space of the process of becoming, the externalizing Kora, was more mysterious to him. By the time Malevich and Kandinsky were exploring the relation of ideas to objects, and how each became the other, perspectives had inverted. As we analyzed last time, the comprehensibility of space within culture 
had been reversed. What was once seen as most mysterious, the so-called empty space of Cora, was now comfortably, if not perfectly, understood, while the internal realm of ideas, most of it eventually declared subconscious, was draped in doubt. Even the word orientations I just now used, internal for being and external for becoming, are signposts of this inversion. As an Apollonian, Plato constructed the physical world and life as uncertain and mutable, while the sphere of permanence was out there, beyond the moon and in the realm of forms. The firm ideas were external, the unsteady world internal. Through the centuries, that dualism would be stood on its head. Faustian civilization, especially after the scientific revolution, gridded and celebrated the once anathematized empty space and declared the physical world to obey steady laws that approached permanence. Concepts such as time, chair, beauty, or love, once dealt with as external, sometimes as gods with their own bodies, were now internalized, and the immediate physical world, which Plato sank into the cave and nested at the center of the celestial spheres, was now out there, that is, subject to alienated study. The Cora, as site for innovation, became a valuable place of production. As science had plowed through untapped fields of understanding due to this platonic pole shift, metaphysics and art were in turn due to break virgin ground. This is perhaps yet another aspect of what Virginia Woolf was referring to with her famous remark about the world changing on or about December 1910. The West's inversion of the classical worldview drove science to new discovery, and art followed suit. Kandinsky's study on the spiritual in art was treating as uncertain and fertile what Plato had argued for as certain and seminal. Kandinsky was exploring the inner space of art as science had plumbed the outer depths of the physical world. Our episodes on his philosophy of creativity noted how his near-obsessive focus on inner feeling cut him off from further exploration of a reformed understanding of ideas relating to the world. 
of a dualism progressing beyond what science had already defined to finality. Therefore, Kandinsky's art and his invisible Moses might look from a mountain over the Jordan into a promised new civilization that so many were yearning to reach. But by dwelling on the sphere of being as internal, he would never cross into it. Malevich, by contrast, was focusing on the process of becoming, on the space of the Kora itself. His area of investigation was morphogenesis, the creation of extant form within that synthetic realm where matter and spirit intertwine. His 1927 book, The Non-Objective World, published by the Bauhaus, sets forth a series of clear statements on his view of the artistic process, placing art within its definite place in the hierarchy of phenomena, arguing that it can be examined scientifically. His analysis of art thus begins in the sphere of becoming, of phenomena and matter, which are amenable to science. The opening lines of his work, preceding what we just quoted, scope the territory ahead. Creative activity is expressed by means of lines, planes, and three-dimensional shapes and produces static or dynamic forms of the most varied kinds, which still further differ from each other in respect to color, hue, structure, texture, organization, and system. There we have geometry and form, but not at all in a purist or Euclidean sense. He sets out not with isolated and perfect axioms, but with variations of infinite diversity. These forms he is describing are the result, the expression, not the cause. The sources for creativity, the realm of being, now made internal, he divides between two opposites. Two basic types of creation can be distinguished. One, initiated by the conscious mind, serves practical life, so-called, and deals with concrete visual phenomena. The other, stemming from the subconscious or superconscious mind, stands apart from all practical utility and treats abstract visual phenomena. We find the concrete element in the sciences and religion, 
the abstract in art. This is precisely the distinction we began this episode with. Creativity of the conscious mind serves science and, he argues, religion. Unconscious creativity drives art, though, as is true with architecture, it is admitted that the activity of the painter is a combined function of the conscious and subconscious minds. He calls his theory, and eventual experiments, an investigation of artistic production in general and of painting in particular. This calls up the subtitle of Kandinsky's 1910 essay. One could imagine the paraphrase here concerning production in art, especially in painting. We have broken out of the inner world of being into an investigation of morphogenesis. Painting has hitherto been looked upon and treated by critics as something purely emotional, without consideration for the particular character of the environment in which this or that artwork came into being. No analytic investigation has ever been undertaken which was able to explain what causes the development of an artistic structure in its relation to the environment affecting it. He takes up the stance of a diagnostic physician, noting that art has lately discarded the prior pattern of more or less direct imitation of the natural world, and just as a doctor would investigate an unusual condition of the human organism by looking for the cause of a symptom in an investigation of the blood or urine, Malevich set out to create an analogous laboratory in his own art classes. Clearly advocating for environmental determinism, something that Marxists were partial to, the painter defines an individual's plurality of intrinsic selves as constantly shifting, buffeted, and shaped by the changing environment. And here, the platonic pole shift is further expressed by how change in the expression of formal types comes about. The environment is variable and exerts erosive and consequential forces on extant forms. That is shared by both heuristics. But rather than the eternal ideas stamping themselves out on malleable pieces of metal, an additional element in the environment 
moves like a free radical in chemistry, catalyzing molecules around it into new substances. The peculiar character of any new visual environment exercising its effect upon us constitutes that additional element which brings about a change in the normal relationship between the element of consciousness and that of the subconscious, and which, in the case of the professional response, is expressed in a new, unfamiliar technique, in a certain unusual attitude toward nature in a novel point of view. Malevich argues that in the presence of such a transformative additional element, we are compelled to change, or to reinforce the old standards against it. He argues that the world constantly seeks norms. This is a rephrasing of entropy. If a change is accepted, a new equilibrium is achieved in the absence of further additional elements. Anticipating cybernetic studies, he states that we see the rise of systems which, above all else, serve to support and fortify order in the sense of the accustomed norm and the state of inactivity within this norm. He diagnoses distance from an established norm by degree of intelligibility. Cubism, for example, represented a drastic break with previous norms, as both critics and the public found it not only incomprehensible, but were openly resistant and hostile to it. Indeed, Malevich mentions how cubist and futurist painters were early on portrayed as mentally ill. The first effect of the additional element was deemed to be pathological, as if a radioactive mutation was occurring. Yet, as we now know very well, a new normal in art was quickly established one that was clearly visible even in 1927, less than 20 years after the first outbreak of the cubist imagination. We take this process itself to be normal now, even as something to be lamented. People who enjoy the avant-garde in architecture and painting as a refuge from the supposedly bourgeois banality of common taste, have complained that there is no longer any avant-garde to speak of. The reason given is that the entropic turnover in visual culture has become so voracious. What took nearly two decades to go from crazy in 1910 to mainstream in 1927 for Picasso, was greatly compressed for later artists. 
the new art, went from shocking with de Kooning's Expressionism in 1953 to yesterday's news when Pop Art's star began to rise some three years later. Despite the focus on the transformational potential of additional elements, lag time within an avant-garde bubble is not at all Malevich's concern. He does not care much for novelty itself. Rather, he is interested in how the process of change can be put to work by introducing the additional element to change minds, change art, and change the world. If anything, the disappearance of an avant-garde would only mean that the additional element has become an even more efficient tool. Because he is starting from environmental determinism, very radical consequences follow from that given, as observed within a changing environment. Our conception of reality is likewise changeable and depends upon the interplay of those elements of reality which, as they make their appearance, are subject to one kind of distortion or another in the mirror of our consciousnesses, our brain. Since our ideas and conceptions of matter are always distorted images, having not the slightest relation to reality. Stated again, the world changed on or about December 1910, and Malevich argued for the fact that we could claim and instrumentalize the force behind these transformations. The environment changes. The new surroundings change us. We, as changed people, alter the environment and the choral feedback loop begins again. The additional element is equivalent to a revolutionary particle that can reshape the mind and the world. The path Malevich outlines through the Kora is here, even more pointedly, an inversion of the platonic understanding of change and creation. Immediately after his statement on the mutable nature of perception and reality, he writes, Matter itself is eternal and immutable. Its insensibility to life, its lifelessness, is unshakable. The changing element of our consciousness and feeling in the last analysis is illusion. Matter is no longer the malleable, temporary, perishable shadow subject to the eternal forms of the mind. Science had demonstrated as much through the laws of conservation. With the process of becoming upturned, the passage 
of the additional element from the environment through the sensible Cora into the malleable mind transforms the individual, and also the world at large, when a new normal becomes expressed. As Marx's materialism upended Hegel's spiritual teleology, Malevich inverted Plato's morphogenesis. He also provided the further step of focusing upon the Kora as the main locus of not just activity, but also attention and analysis. In so doing, he turned what had been a matter of theory for 2,500 years into something he could experiment with on art students. And it is to this early study of morphogenesis that our investigation will turn. Isolating his special examination of this general phenomenon to the geometry of painting, Malevich names three additional elements, each with its own respective norms within a realized school of painting. There is thus the so-called fibrous line of Cezanne, the sickle-shaped line of cubism, and the isolated straight line of suprematism. And if cubism had been something of an atomic bomb to the art world, Malevich was building a nuclear reactor. Join us as we examine the dynamic half-lives of cubism and futurism under controlled conditions next time on Lapsus Lima.